So the reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 27, and you can find that on page 1135 in the Church Bible. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only, but we ourselves, uh, not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons to the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no longer hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Excellent. Do keep that open uh, in front of you. We're coming to an amazing passage uh, in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, I'd encourage you to listen to somebody else on this as well. <laughs> um, Friday, uh, after I'd already decided I was going to preach on this, um, I was doing a little bit of a search back through my notes. I was thinking, I'm sure, I'm sure I've preached on this recently, but I can't remember. And wandered back through and suddenly realized it was actually Rachel that preached on this back in December. Um, but I didn't hear her preach because I was out doing children's groups, which is why I hadn't lodged before you all worry that I'm confessing that I wasn't listening. I wasn't in here at the time. Um, I have had a little listen. It's fab. You should listen to it. And it's really different from the angle that I'm taking, not because we disagree, but because this is one of those passages where I reckon you could preach 40 sermons, all different, um, uh, all faithful, if you like, to Scripture, because um, there's so much here. So do go back and listen to Rachel back, from back in December. Um, and I think God's got something to say to us today as well. As we continue uh, our little series uh, on God's empowering presence, thinking about the, the gift and work and wonder, really, uh, of God's empowering presence, God's Holy Spirit in us. So I wonder whether you've ever been lost, uh, properly lost, thoroughly lost. Now, for most of us, that may well go back to the days before we had, it's hard to imagine that this, there was ever a day, but a day before we had GPS. Uh, my kids really struggle with this whole concept that there was a time before mobile phones, there was a time before GPS, um, the fact that I bought my first mobile phone when Stephen was expected, and he's now 18, feels to them a long time ago. To me, it feels like the blink of an eye, and I can't believe that I've now just assumed I will always know where I am because of my mobile phone. Um, but before we had that, um, I did get thoroughly lost, and I was thoroughly lost in a place that I was desperate not to be lost in. Uh, I was lost in Seville, in Spain, and I was in a hire car, and I was driving through the center of Seville. Now, can I just say to you, as a little sort of public health announcement, 
I'd suggest you don't do that. Um, Seville is beautiful. It's one of my favorite places in the world. But it's just awful to drive through the center because the, the, the streets are so incredibly narrow. Um, if you're a Top Gear fan, it's the sort of place that they would deliberately put Richard Hammond in an enormous um, you know, van and then get him to drive down one of these tiny, tiny, tiny streets where there's about this either side. And that in itself is stressful enough in a hire car. It's even worse when you go, I don't know where I'm going. Is there a dead end at the end? Are we going to suddenly come out into the middle of a square and realize there aren't meant to be cars here? Um, are we going to end up in front of a police station? I, in, we're not going to all of that. But the bottom line is, I was desperate to know two things. One is where I was, and the second was where I was going. What we wanted to do was get out of the centre and get to the car park that we found on a map. Do you remember those things that you fold out and look at? Um, but I knew neither. I didn't know where I was properly. We had a vague idea, and I definitely didn't know whether I was going to get out. And it seems to me that that is a, a, a really helpful picture for us of what this passage does for us in terms of our lives and today. It helps us, it places us on the map, on the big map of God's salvation history, the story of God's work in his world for his world. It basically says you are here. And perhaps even more importantly, certainly as importantly, it says to us, and this is where you're going. And it seems to me that if we're going to get through day by day living with Jesus, living for Jesus, being effective for Jesus, we need to know both of those things. We need to understand where we are now, why it feels like this, why we experience it like this, both the highs and the lows, the joys and the sorrows. But also we desperately need to know where we're going. What's the end of all of this? How do we, how do, you know, not just where am I now, but where am I heading? And the way that Paul writes this is, if you like, to zoom right out to get the big picture of what God is doing in his world from creation to the end of all things. And then to zoom in and say, and you are right here. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be, will be revealed in us. Now, there's a little bit of us that ought to be quite relieved that he starts there. Because there's an awful lot about religious faith that at times demands of its followers a sense of unreality, a sense of living in denial. But actually, the Bible never does that. The Bible is brutally honest about the reality of day-by-day -day lived experience because life is not always good doesn't feel that way anyway. Life is not always happy. Life is not always pain-free. It should be a great relief to us to find that Paul is able to place a finger on the map and realistically say to us, you're here, and God knows that you're here, and that is not an accident, and it's not a, a, a disaster, and you're not about to head down a hole and never be seen again. This is the reality of where we live, of what we're doing we are experiencing present sufferings. Now, we know there's far more to life than that, but we have to at least start with that reality. There is plenty that is broken in our lives. There is plenty that is broken in our world. There is plenty that is broken in our relationships. There is plenty that is broken in our bodies. The present sufferings. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation 
for the sons of God to be revealed. Can I just take a quick diversion for two minutes, um, maybe one minute, on the word sons all the way through here? Um, these days, I think we well, probably rightly trip up over that and go, well, okay, does that mean half of us here, if this is not relevant? Um, I think we could realistically retranslate this and talk about being children, because it is meant to be sons and daughters. Within the context of Paul writing at that particular moment in history, some 2,000 years ago, sons was important simply because you only got to inherit if you were the eldest son. And you'll find a little bit later on in this passage that he wants us to know that we are going to inherit. We are heirs of God. And thankfully, today, in our culture now, inheritance is not based on gender or on the order of birth, but it was then. So if when you hear me read sons, you can say, yeah, I know what that means. It includes me, sons and daughters, children of God who are inheritors of what's to come. So diversion over. Um, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated. Now, that sounds very odd language, very strange language, but I want to suggest that what he's doing is he's taking us uh, right the way back to the very first pages of the Bible, and he's saying to us, if you understand that if you understand how God has made this world and of the state that it's in and if he you can place yourself in that story you'll understand why life feels like and is like it is so the picture language of Genesis 1 2 and 3 says this it says that God has made all things and he made all things good and that he made human beings. He made us very good. This was a great gift God has given. He's given the, the gift of the reality of the universe, and he's put us in it. And the picture language of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that he's put us in it with a job to do. And that job that we have to do is to, uh, I'm going to use language again, we might trip over, is to rule over it. Now, we immediately think of rule as being a negative thing, a power trip. But actually, in the Bible, rule has to do with responsibility rather than more than it has to do with power. We are given as human beings responsibility for the whole of God's created order. And in particular, this planet that we're placed on, according to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we've been given that sense of responsibility for. There is, if you like, a three-cornered relationship of God as creator, we as his creatures, and of all creation. And those three pairs, if you like, of relationships were made, Genesis 1, to be good. Us living in relationship with our creator, us living in right relationship with the created order around us, created order giving praise, if you like, to its maker, just as a piece of artwork, if you like, reflects uh, its creator. But the picture language of Genesis 2 and 3 is that we have turned our backs on God. We've said, actually, rather than having you as our king and us, if you like, living out that responsibility towards you, we're going to be kings and queens. We're going to be the rulers. We're going to make ourselves the center of the universe, not you. And there's something is therefore broken about the world. Something breaks in each of those three relationships. Yes, the most obvious thing in Genesis 2 and 3 is that we break our relationship with our maker. That's why God feels so far off. That's why we struggle at times to even believe he's there. That's why praying sometimes feels like shouting into a concrete bucket. God feels a long way off because as human beings, we've turned our backs on him. That relationship has a crack 
running through it that only God himself can remake. But it has also broken those other two relationships. It's introduced a fracture, if you like, into our relationship with creation and even into creation's relationship with its maker. It's picture language. But it's picture language that begins to actually make sense of our lived experience of suffering and of a broken world. I don't know whether you've ever um, noticed just how hard it is to find a U-rated, and I mean that as a metaphor, as in an appropriately rated nature documentary to watch with really little children. Because actually, quite a lot of nature isn't that pretty when you're a three or a four or a five or a six-year-old, especially if you're a fairly sensitive um, young child. There's quite a lot of nature that is quite brutal and bloody and heartbreaking. You know, whether you're uh, you know, looking at um, penguin colonies being wiped out or a baby elephant that can't get out of a, a muddy pool, and we tend to watch the success stories on TV, but the fact is we recognize that there is so much in, in the created order that is heartbreakingly tragic. And we think, well, that's just the way it is. But we sort of rebel against it. I don't remember that big fuss that was made over the BBC TV crew that helped this bunch of baby penguins out of this dip they'd ended up in. And, and people were torn. Oh, you should have just left them to it. We don't want to interfere in creation. And everybody else going, ah, oh, it's great. We've rescued some penguins. We're, we're sort of in this, in this tension. We, we have a sense of how the world could be and should be, of its beauty, of its creativity, of its wonder, of this astonishing variety. And yet we live in the midst of a fractured, broken world. We live in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Here is the unique perspective that the Bible gives to our lived experience, and it's this. The hope for our world, the hope for creation, the hope for our relationships, the hope for our own souls and bodies, is that day when we are made as we were always intended to be, when we are put back into right relationship with our Heavenly Father, and where we live out truly the responsibility that we were given to care for our world, to care for one another, and yes, even to care for ourselves. And Paul uses four bits of picture language. Each one of them you could spend a whole sermon on, but he uses four bits of picture language to sort of go, look, here's what I mean. The first bit of picture language is to do, we've already mentioned it, is to do with slavery. Verse 21, uh, in, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's slavery language. And actually, those first hearing this letter read, w this would have immediately taken them back to Egypt, when God's Old Testament ancient people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage. They were slaves that needed to be liberated. And what Paul is saying to us is, that experience you have of that Oh, I wish life were different. Oh, I long for life to be made as it should be. How on earth can I live day by day like this? It's just the same sort of longing that a slave might have for freedom. Somebody who knows that they weren't made for slavery longs for freedom. You and I know that we weren't made to live the whole of our lives like this. We long for freedom. That's one bit of picture language. There's a second bit of picture language. You might say a second and third because they're linked. 
the first of that pair is to do with being, uh, being given birth to. The picture language of childbirth. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. I'm aware that um, this is a bit close for some people, so we won't go into great detail. Um, but the fact is that childbirth both has within it a struggle, but also an end. And Paul wants to say there is that sense of struggle at times of pain and of difficulty and of longing for it to be over. And it has a hope in sight, a birth, a new life. And there's a third set of picture language that goes with that, which is also to do with children, but in this case it's to do with adoption. Um, uh, verse, sorry, I've just lost it. Here we go. Verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons, as God's children. Now again, in the process of adoption, there is a waiting period and then a reality. There is a waiting period where all the processes have gone through and the legal processes and the, is it going to work out? Is it not going to work out? Is this the appropriate placement for a child? And there is that day of signing the papers. There is that day when it, it is true you're adopted. And then there are, of course, all of those years of living into what it means to be part of that family. Slavery that results in liberation, child birth that, that, that results in new birth, adoption that results in a new relationship, and then this fourth and final uh, picture, which is one of harvest. It's one we might have missed because it's not a word that we use very often, but it was earlier on that, that same verse, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits, it's a sort of technical term that you used um, during the season of harvest when you brought to the temple the first fruits, literally the first fruits, if you were a, a grower of apples, um, or the first sheaf of corn, or actually the firstborn lamb. You brought a real and actual taste of the fullness that was to come. A real and actual taste of the fullness that was to come. Not just a picture of it, or a description of it, or the hoped-for image of it, but an actual taste of the fullness that's to come. And it's that picture of harvest that perhaps brings us most naturally and quickly into the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. Because if Paul is saying to us, look, where you are right now on this map is in slavery or is in the throes of childbirth or is waiting for adoption or is longing for the harvest, he also wants to say to us, you're not alone there and you get to taste now a little bit of what's to come. You're not alone there, and you get to taste now a little bit of what's to come. And those, that pair of jobs is what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, God's empowering presence. He comes to be with us now where we are in the midst of that struggle and difficulty of just simply living day to day, and he comes to bring us a true and actual real taste of the life of the world to come. It's what first fruits uh, implies that in receiving the gift of God's empowering presence, God's Holy Spirit, we get a taste of the reality of what's to come. Just as if somebody brought you their first basket of apples from their orchard and you picked one up and you bit into it and you ate it, you're having a real experience of that whole harvest that's to come. It's not the whole thing. It's not a lorry load of apples. It's not all the variety of ripeness and taste and colour and texture, but it is a real taste. 
Or if somebody gives you a down payment, maybe they're buying their house from you, and you get a down payment, a deposit. Well, it's a real sum of money. It's just not nearly the whole full amount. But it's still yours, and it's still real, and you can still spend it. Or if somebody actually simply gives you a taste of the food that's to come, or for that matter, and this may be stretching a little bit, but you know, when you smell the food that's to come, for my age group, the Arbisto moment, actually what you're smelling is real. I mean, those molecules that are coming into your nostril are real molecules from the real foods. It's just that you're longing for more. The Holy Spirit is the first fruit. This is remarkable when you think about it. You see, religion often talks about heaven. Religion in general often talks about the life for the world to come. But actually, only the Christian faith says to us, actually, you get to taste right now, right here, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of ordinary, everyday, difficult at times life. You get to taste now a real first fruit, a real taste of the world to come. So, to use these four images, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us a taste of liberation. Now, we know we're still slaves. We're we're pretty rubbish at giving up ingrained habits and addictions and, and bad patterns. But actually, we also know the Holy Spirit is able to bring us a taste of liberation. There are countless stories in our own lives and in other people's lives of when the Holy Spirit comes and brings God's power into their life and he liberates them from a part of their life that has held them back from years. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We long for the fullness of it, but that first fruit can bring freedom to our lives. Or childbirth. Well, yeah, we don't have the full experience of what it is to be born anew. But we do get a sense of that newness beginning to work in us. You know, I, at the age of nearly 50, my body is definitely what it, not what it was. I'm never, not convinced it was that great in the first place. But, it, you know, it, there are, I'm definitely increasingly aware of my own mortality and my own frailty and the bits that are perhaps not quite what I'd hoped them to be. But the fact is that I can also pray with confidence for others and for myself for a touch of God's healing, for a touch of God's health. Why? Well, not simply because I believe in a God who occasionally zaps people with power, but because the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring a taste of the life of the world to come. And what I know is true of the life of the world to come is, staggeringly enough, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to be perfectly me. Even in my body, finally, I'm going to be the person that God made me to be. So when the Holy Spirit comes in power to bring healing, he's simply bringing you a taste of the life of the world to come. It's not a difficult thing for God to do. He's simply bringing now what he's going to give us fully to come. Now, there is a tension in that. Not everybody we pray for gets well. Not everything we pray for gets answered. That is desperately hard. It's heartbreakingly hard. But it's what we would expect because we're still in the throes of childbirth. We're not fully there. But the Holy Spirit brings us a taste of what's to come. He brings us a taste of liberation. He brings us a taste of healing. And in adoption, he brings us a taste of relationship. You know, when it comes to my relationship with God, I do feel like I've got about 1% of the way there. There are moments in worship. There are moments in prayer. There are moments in my everyday life when I feel like I'm just edging in to the sort of edges of what my relationship with God is meant to be when I feel like I just catch a glimpse of him, when I have those moments where I just feel his eyes upon me, when my heart is warmed 
when I realize I'm his child, when his grace just floods my life, and then it's gone, if I'm honest. But sort of that's what I'd expect, because I'm not there yet. One day, according to Scripture, I will know God just as well as he knows me. That's a pretty staggering thought. I will know him face to face, even as he knows me face to face. And the Holy Spirit comes and brings a taste of that relationship now. Not the whole thing yet, but a taste of what it is to be adopted as God's child. And then, yes, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, a real taste of that harvest, the harvest of change, the harvest of transformation. Actually, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives whenever people are actually, uh, whether actually they're people of the Spirit or not, whether when people are living and working to bring a taste of that to our creation. I do think that that's why Christians should be on the front foot and on the front line when it comes to caring for our creation. Not because we make creation God, but because God has given us the gift of creation and because God has promised, and this is right here in this passage, that one day creation itself will be liberated. That life of the world to come isn't just about me floating on a cloud and a white nighty playing a harp. This is about me getting to enjoy heaven and earth brought together. Earth healed, made whole, liberated. And me, part of that, ruling as I meant to, responsible as I meant to. So we should be on the front foot. We should be on the front line, making a difference in our world because that's what we were created for. And that's how the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that he's at work in us to do. And then finally, verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Now, this is more where Rachel um, spent some time back in December, and I'd love you to go and listen to that because I haven't got time to go into it fully. But I do want to say this. The Holy Spirit isn't simply about giving us a taste of the life of the world to come. He is also the one who comes and helps us right here and right now. One of the ways he does that is to pray for us. Now, that sounds a bit odd, in a sense. The Holy Spirit praying for us. But actually, if you think of that, one of the pictures of the Holy Spirit is of a companion, a called alongside one, then isn't it wonderful to have somebody who prays for you when you can't pray for yourself? Isn't that an astonishing gift? I've often sat with people at their extremity, if you like, sometimes at the point of death, sometimes at the point of great pain, sometimes at the point of great heartbreak, where there's no way they can pray for themselves. And I get the gift of praying for them. But this passage says that all day, every day, and every night, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And actually, there are times when we feel that prayer as, as groaning, as, as inarticulate words. Commentators disagree over what this refers to. I, I do think that the gift of tongues that many Christians use in their prayer lives, a sort of inarticulate, almost babble that makes no sense to us, but just helps us express those things that we haven't got the words for, is, is an aspect of this, at least, of the Holy Spirit bubbling up in us, a prayer that isn't from us, really, or at least it's no more than a groan and a yell and a scream. But the Holy Spirit takes that prayer to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To have a companion alongside us who prays for us every moment, 
of every day and in the midst of our groanings and our longings that the life would be different, that the world would be transformed, that we would be liberated and given birth to and adopted and that full harvest would come in, that even as the Holy Spirit gives us a taste of the life of the world to come, he's also accompanying us on our journey. So if you're lost, hear the good news that you're not lost. God knows exactly where you are in the midst of this journey towards God and that there is an end in sight that is good. Let's pray as the children come to rejoin us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you that he comes to bring us a taste of the world to come in healing and in liberation and in fruitfulness and in transformation. But thank you too that he comes alongside us to pray for us, to pray with us. Fill us afresh, we pray, with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to serve you. Give us confidence and hope in the life that is to come and help us to live out of that life now that you would help us to be liberators of, new life bringers to, enjoyers of the harvest that is ahead for us. In Jesus' name, amen.